0: Let's talk about means and ends for a second. Technologies are means to ends, and yet we've come to treat technological improvement as an end in itself, effectively. That's the, you could say that's the idle part of it, right? And so if we shift that and we say, well, we want to, let's say, human well being, you know, Christians would think about it differently, but let's say, Human well-being becomes the end we're, we're trying to seek. And we give up on the idea that technology is going to get us to some holy land in the end, you know. Then I would think that maintenance really does come forward. Maintenance and care you know, caring for each other and, and taking care of what we have really comes together because we want the things that we have in our world to be functional. And even more than that, we want them to be beautiful, maybe even, right? We, we want to live with bridges and things that are, uh, you know, are appealing to our senses. And so I think we start bringing in those kind of bigger questions when we kind of push technology aside.
1: We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Marzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Lee Vinsel. Lee's an associate professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech. He studies human life with technology with particular focus on the relationship between government, business, and technological change. He recently published a book with his colleague, Andy Russell, called The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. Since 2015, Lee has organized and led The Maintainers, which is a global interdisciplinary research network that examines maintenance, repair, and mundane work with technology. Maybe the most important thing is that Lee lived in Pittsburgh while pursuing his PhD at Carnegie Mellon in history. So. Welcome, looking forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me, man. I want to uh, spend the interview discussing a range of topics that you cover in your book and also in your other work that's not just from your book. Uh, you'll probably be pleased to know that your book was recommended to me by my very good friend named Brandon, who's a diesel mechanic, an autodidact, a scholar of theology of labor, a seminarian. And I think your book's really speaking to folks in the maintenance business that are really thinking about these issues. So um, maybe someday we'll get to meet Brandon. He's a, he's a good hang. So, all right, so, That is great to hear. Yeah. So first question. So what is the point of innovation? Well, I mean, I think that's a contested topic in itself.
0: I mean, the reason we focus so much in it, you know, historically, we only really started talking in a serious way about innovation after World War II, And I can go into that story and how it happened. But you know, what, folks were looking at is they were hypothesizing that innovation, which is new technologies and new business practices moving out into the world, was giving us things like economic growth, job creation, increased quality of life... And so that's why, in a sense, it got so much energy around it is because it became, you know, seeing as like the key to getting all these other things that we wanted.
1: So how would you differentiate then good innovation, bad innovation, and innovation speak? Those seem to be three concepts that you are really focused on in your book.
0: Yeah. So let me start with a good innovation, bad innovation thing. Part of what I'm, I'll explain as innovation speak in a moment is that we've come to treat innovation like it's a good in itself when it just means new stuff kind of moving out into the economy and and society. And so we have this assumption that it's good. But, you know, things like, you know, we joke in the book and in other places that crack cocaine was clearly a major innovation in the 1980s because it was a new product. It displaced an old product called Blow. There's a lot of risky entrepreneurship around it called Drug Dealing. And it was clearly, according to economic definitions, uh, you know, a major innovation. And then you give kind of like there's lots of other examples, like, you know, the opioid crisis is an innovation story because it's just new stuff getting out there in new ways. Right. And so that's what, you know, like I do think we need to think through the, you know, the difference between good and bad innovation in a more holistic fashion. And then, you know, what the way I've come to talk about innovation speak is. Let's think about science for a second. So, it's easy when we think of a science to think about the difference between our theories, our scientific theories of the world and the world. And one reason it's easy to think about that is because we have a bunch of debunked and old scientific theories from before that don't hold up anymore, right? Well, innovation speak is a kind of way of, is what we call the ways of talking and thinking about innovation that developed in the post-World War II period right up to the present. And our point is that there's a difference between innovation speak and actual innovation. In fact, act- innovation speak doesn't often get us more innovation. It's full of bad theories. And it's also just surrounded, you know, it's the language of boosters and hype mongers and like university presidents who want to open up glass covered buildings and stuff, you know, it's it's the language often of people who are promising things in society that don't deliver for us other things.
1: So when you talk about innovation, it sounds to me that you're posing a broader critique of modernity's unwavering commitment to progress. But at the same time, you seem to make distinctions between these two ideas, progress and innovation. So what is the difference between innovation and progress? And is your project really just a critique of progress that's lodged by other thinkers like Postman, Barry, and King's North? What differentiates your focus on innovation as opposed to progress itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, progress is interesting. So one of the things that we talk about in various places is that if you look, so we use a lot of this tool called Google Ngram, okay, which is a freely available tool on the internet. You can pump in words or phrases and it shows you word use or or phrase use over time. And if you look at the use of the word Progress, it starts going down around 1968, right? It's like there's environmental problems, there's the Vietnam War, Watergates on the way, and all these kinds of things, right people the faith in progress starts getting pretty shaky in the 70s. This is exactly the moment when you use the word innovation is rising. So one of the things we argue is that innovation becomes like a, like a replacement term for progress in many ways. But it often kind of progress had a moral dimension to it, like a social and moral dimension. It was supposed to be like social improvement. And innovation often promises that kind of change through technological innovation or change in itself. Right. And so I think that I I mean, I think that you can make common links between us and like critics of progress. But we, Andy and I are also people who think that like quality of life really has improved a lot in the last 200 years. So we don't want to poo-poo, you know, the actual technical progress. We can talk about moral and political progress if you want to, but narrow technical progress, quality of life progress is pretty easy to demonstrate. Um, and so we don't want to poo-poo that. We're more sh- trying to argue that our focus on technological change since like the 60s or whatever just is not delivering and it's not getting us what we want. So we have to come up with new and better ways to think about these things.
1: Yeah, so that really leads into this next set of questions is I wanna talk a little bit about digital technology which is really the nexus of 21st century innovation. So why is it that everything I truly need in my house was invented before 1980, maybe invented before 1900, actually?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so this is, we draw a lot on the the economist Robert Gordon and people who, who think like him. And Gordon argues that the biggest period of actual innovation is between 1920 and 1970 in U.S. history, And that contrary to people who are like, oh, technology is changing faster than ever or whatever, you know, in the last decade decade or two, most, you know, most of the technologies that we use in a daily, you know, on our daily lives were invented in this earlier period and haven't changed that much since 1970. So, I mean, I think you're really putting your finger on it. Like, we really, when we talk about innovation today, it's all about digital technologies, but it's not really, digital technology has also been massively overpromised in terms of like quality and life improvements, you know? And yeah, so it draws our attention back to older stuff.
1: So are Amazon, Google, Facebook, and Apple actually innovative? And that's what we hear. Are they actually innovative or are they, or is it innovation speak?
0: No, I mean, they're definitely, we can kind of break them apart and think about what their actual innovations are, right? Google innovated in search. I mean, it still makes most of its money from search and advertising, basically. Amazon has has um, innovated around logistics and and moving stuff around the planet although it builds on Walmart and other companies that innovated in that way much earlier. And, you know, Facebook, social media is a new technology, uh, but I think that what goods it has delivered is, uh, is an open question, you know, something we can chew on.
1: So if you're sitting in a room with executives from these companies, what goods would you ask them to deliver? And that kind of goes back to the first question about what is the point of innovation? What are the goods to which you think innovation, good innovation would would serve?
0: Yeah, Thank you. I mean, that's a great question. I think, so we go, there's two places we could have gone in the book. In the first part of the book, we question innovation speak. And then in our book, we talk about how it leads us to neglect other important ends like maintenance repair. It could have been a book about innovation policy and how we get the kind of innovations we want or something like that. And I think that what we see, we're, we're maybe at the end of another asset bubble, another technology bubble. So things have been imploding for the last year with technology firms. And when you look at like sharing economy apps, all this kind of crap that has come around in the last, last decade, and they're really not delivering much quality of life improvement, frankly. You know, like you get food delivery now. Well, I could order a pizza in the 1990s with a phone, right? It's like not that good. So what I think we need to do is focus on ends. And I think we, you and I could have really interesting questions or uh, conversations about it. We need to focus on ends that we actually care about. And so the two I focus on, I mean, we can talk about climate change and ideas like Green New Deal and stuff like that, but just housing. I mean, we have housing crises all over the nation right now in and all, in all many nations around the world. And I think those are the kinds of things we need to focus on in technological change. Like let's house people in environmentally sustainable housing, for instance, would be an end worth achieving. And I think you're going to need government action to do that. It's pretty clear that like the market alone is not going to solve that problem.
1: So one thing your book made me think about and some other things I've been reading recently is, so is digital technology just another form of technology or is it a paradigm shift? Is it radically different conceptually from the wheel or the light bulb or indoor plumbing or is it, you know, I often hear that, well, the smartphone is just like the wheel. It's just a new thing that we have and we just need to deal with it. Or is it a total paradigm shift, a a new technology that totally changes the way that we should think about technology?
0: I'm on the it's not a paradigm shift uh, team. I think, you know, like a lot of historians of technology, I think there's basically two major, like you could say, technological revolutions in human history. And they are when we settled down and started like growing agriculture that happened a long time ago, that was a big change. And the second one's the technological in, or industrial rev- revolution basically. And I think like historians like Nathan Ensbanger, the historian of computing, when they are when they do this history, they just show that computing is an extension of the industrial revolution and not like a, a fundamental change.
1: Yeah, that's interesting cuz you know a guy like Jeffrey Ramos, I mean he argues that that essentially this is ushered in an entirely new age of networks that Almost it's a new industrial revolution that that puts an end to the industrial revolution and and engages something entirely, entirely new. But it sounds like you don't think so.
0: I think that's just wrong. But just look at let's just look at economic numbers since the 70s together when like digital technology is supposed to have taken off. And we just don't see a new era of productivity change or production change. Production has been growing, production output's been growing very slow. So there's just no, I mean, for me, there's no quantitative evidence that we've like entered a new economic moment as a result of digital technology.
1: So what about the shifts in the, the distribution of employment then from you know manufacturing to service? That seems to be a, a new economy. Or, or are you just saying it's the same economy, just sort of redistributed in, in a way that's new, but not fundamentally? disruptive and revolutionary.
0: I mean, the the shift of services preceded, was already preceded like personal computers and cell phones and stuff like that. It is a change, but it has to do with deindustrialization and global, you know, globalization and these much larger forces. And I think that, I think that digital technology is going to play some role. I mean, we can do like remote work for certain kinds of white collar work. Although, you know, my my point with maintainers is, you know, like, let's not forget your diesel mechanic buddy. He can't do remote work, right? Like, he needs a shop. So I mean, it, there's only so many kinds of forms of labor that are really going to shift as a result of this. And I'm all for it. I mean, you know, if my friends, some of my friends would like to live on the side of a mountain in West Virginia and do their tech work. And I say amen to that. I mean, that sounds like a beautiful life, right? um So I mean, I'm up for those improvements. I just think we should not overestimate their impacts, their their overall impacts.
1: So I want to read a quote from an essay called "The Cross and the Machine" by Paul Kingsnorth. I don't know if you've been reading Kingsnorth or not, but you know he has some similar critiques that you have in your book. So here's what he says: So dig in for long enough, and you see that something like climate change or mass extinction is not a problem to be solved through politics or science, but the manifestation of a deep spiritual malaise. So for Kingsnorth, climate change is really the sign of a deeper spiritual issue that's rooted in our worship of progress. So I'm wondering to what extent do you think modernity's fixation with innovation is a spiritual issue before it's political. or scientific or technological?
0: Man, that's a deep question. I want to answer it two ways. I think that, you know, a lot of the problems, and this is especially true of climate change, we just didn't know what we were getting ourselves into when we started up the modern technological, you know, world that we started building up and was, you know, it was honestly mostly on track before we even knew climate change was a real problem, right? So it's like we became aware of a deeper thing. But I think the, where I connect with Kings North is I just don't think that like technological solutionist folks who want to solve climate change purely through technological change are, you know, I don't think they can do it, honestly, you know, and so that does, the way it's a spiritual question is because you've got to imagine a future where Americans decide to consume less, you know, as a society. And that, to me, that that connects to like Aquinas and all kinds of, you know, Christian theologians and Asian, the, you know, like, you know, Buddhist thinkers and all kinds of people like, but that's a spiritual issue to tangle with is how
1: do we choose to consume less right. in, in Kings North? One of his big points is that, you know, every culture needs someone on the throne, right? And it, it was God. And now we've replaced it with progress. And when I read your work, it seems again, you, you seem to use innovation very similarly to the way that Kings North talks about progress. So, so instead of God yeah, or throne, growth, right? Growth. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That's, that's really it. That's a really good point is, is Kings North. It's about want and growth. And I mean, greed, really. I mean, that's really the center of what King's North is talking about. Okay. This actually leads into my next question. I want to talk a little bit about the political implications of our commitment to innovation and our lack of attention to maintenance. So now, would you be in favor of more of a zero growth economy that shifts away from innovation to simply maintaining what we have? And if so, who wins and loses in such a scenario?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think part of our problem is that we're focusing on kind of like ridiculous technologies in this last bubble that we've been living in for the last decade. I'm for positive technological change that actually improves daily life, you know, and I think we need to think about how to get that stuff. But I do think we need to consume less, and so, you know, I'm I have not spent serious time with the degrowthers yet. I mean this there's, there's a whole school of degrowth, but I need to Yeah, I feel like there was another part of your question I'm not answering that.
1: Right. So if we do commit to a degrowth model, who wins and loses? No, well, my first thought is, yeah. well, if we degrow, you know, then the you know, maybe the laptop class loses because we no longer you know, they're sort of the engine of innovation. But if you look at sort of uh, countries in the developing world that have sort of degrowth, it tended to be, you know, sort of those in poverty because the growth that has been already accumulated has been accumulated to the wealthy, and when you stop growing, the wealthy aren't giving their stuff away. It's just now the poor can't catch up. Right.
0: I mean, I think that the, if you have the kind of social hierarchies we have in place, the economic hierarchies, then the poor are going to suffer, and this is this is a big problem. I mean, I know that degrowthers are thinking through this systematically. That like, if you're going to degrow, you have to think about inequality and poverty. Otherwise, you're just going to screw poor people basically, and so that's. Yeah, but, but I mean, you know, like if we stop growth, I mean, we can see it in how the, the air has been leaving the markets the last year or so. The asset holding classes are also suffering right now. So when you when you have recessions, everyone suffers, but you know, that it's the suffering that happens on the bottom that you gotta worry about the most because they have the least and they suffer the hardest, you know? Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So to what extent might the emergence of 21st century populism uh, be driven by our fixation with innovation?
0: Well, I mean, I think that this connects to like, you can see what some people call neoliberalism, which is not a term I tend to use, but is kind of like free market economics that both the Republicans and the Democrats were into for a period of time, say from 80 to 2016 or something like that. Is in a sense about innovation, right? Because it's about cutting taxes, cutting back regulations. Why are you going to do that? Well, because it's going to spur on entrepreneurship and give us technological change, and we'll get all kinds of benefits from that, right? And I think, the, I mean, my read on like Bernie and Trump is that they are a, and I'm not alone, I'm, you know, I'm drawing on others here, but I think they are a reaction to how that economic system, which is a system of innovation, has failed the normal people, right? And so I think populism is all about our overall economic system, including the fetish for innovation, failing us. And then, you know, people being pissed about that. And they react to it in different ways. You have like the Democratic socialists under Bernie, and then you have anti-immigrant and other kinds of kind of right wing concerns under the Trump forces. But I still think, you know, I, I believe that there are you know, similar causes to both of those things.
1: Right. Although, you know, these sort of uh, ideologies, it's it's not a line, it's a circle, right? <laughs> so, so Bernie yeah. and Trump actually kind of meet at a particularly odd place. I know both of those guys would not like that comparison, but anyways, yeah. they're very similar. I
0: mean, here's this called the horseshoe theory and I kind of buy into it in a way, including, I mean, I think the way they tap into emotion, for instance, and the kinds of the rhetorics they're willing to use are pretty similar. But, you know, my hardcore Bernie fans, friends really get angry when I say this kind of thing. So I'm just getting myself into trouble here.
1: All right. So I'm acutely aware here I am at the university of Pittsburgh that higher education is complicit in the promotion expansion of this innovation delusion. So how has your study of innovation changed the way you teach? Mm. Well, the way I uh, I have a class called Innovation in
0: Context, which is not about maintenance. I mean, I bring maintenance in, but it really is about innovation. And the first half of that class, I uh, arrange around myths about about innovation that are out there in our culture. So, for instance, the idea that like small businesses give us give us you know in startups give us most of our innovation that's just not true. And so, I really you know I'm kind of old school. I I do raise political and moral questions for my students and ethical. We deal with ecological quandaries, but I really try to have them understand what we know about innovation and, and how we get it. And it turns out that when you do that work, all the innovation speak, you know, ideas about how to get it, like building glass covered buildings on campuses or whatever that we like to do in higher ed, they just don't turn out to produce actual innovation. They're just, mis- you know, we've been misled by our leaders. So that's kind of how I really try to give students a sense of the world around them. I'm old school in that way. I'm like, I want to teach them how the world works. And then for me, you know, I'm, you know, like we call, you know, there's a kind of critique of creating safe spaces I try to create safe spaces for everyone, conservatives and liberals alike. I want Christian conservatives and libertarians to feel comfortable in my classroom. When I teach them the way the world is, you know, in to the best of our knowledge, then what I'm what I want from them then is to connect their values and where they're coming from morally and religiously to uh, you know, for them to deal with that from their own point of view, with my help.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that you know, before I read your book, I've been you know thinking about these issues, and I'm beginning to conceive of my job as one that's very conservative, right? Particularly my teaching. You know, my, as a person in health sciences, the real focus is NIH funding, right? That's all that we really care about. And I realized that what I really think my job is here is teaching students. To your point, I haven't really thought about this way is the way the world works and, and helping them to conserve wisdom as opposed to just cranking out more r ones which, you know, obviously the institution likes, but. I don't know if it's really serving the needs of, of these kids at the institution. So
0: there was a do you remember Neil Postman, who's one of these technology critics? I can't remember if you mentioned him earlier or not, but um, he's interesting because he had like two books. One's called Teaching as like a Radical Act or something like that. And then his second one was Teaching as a Conservative Act. And I think that, I think we have a balancing act to play.
1: Well, I'll tell you you something funny about that. I was, I literally was, I just got those books from a library. Our library has the radical one. It doesn't have the conserving one. I thought that was, I thought that was kind of telling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So are you encouraging your children to go to college? Thank you for asking that
0: question. I, we, we talk about college, but I also talk to them about the trades a lot. And my wife and I have even played with the idea of like, not insisting, but very much encouraging them to get a trade degree at the junior college, maybe in high school or something like that, like either plumbing or electricity, you know, being a, becoming electrician. Because what I want them to understand is that you can have a solid middle class life and not go to college. And that we, you know, I would love it if they went to college and studied philosophy or theology or whatever and and thought, but like, I want them to go for the right reasons and not the wrong ones. We've seriously overpromised college as a path to a career, unfortunately.
1: We might find interesting, I don't know if you've been following this at all, but Franciscan University in Steubenville, I don't know if you know Franciscan, but it's a small, faithful Catholic college. And uh, some of the faculty there just started something called the, I'm going to get the name wrong, but the College of St. Joseph the Worker. And you actually, when you graduate, so the way that it's structured is you get a bachelor's degree in Catholic studies, but at the same time you learn a trade and you have an an apprenticeship with a contractor in, in Steubenville who's a Catholic and you make money. So you emerge both with a bachelor's in arts and Catholic studies, and you are have some accreditation or certification as a plumber or an electrician or a carpenter, and you emerge debt-free because you've paid for a long way through your apprenticeship. And I'm seeing these models emerge quite a bit, and a lot of them are sort of grounded in Catholic thinkers. There's one in um, New Mexico called Kateri College or something like this. And I wonder, do you see this as a movement uh, that's happening outside of my own little sort of Catholic bubble?
0: You know, I, I want to learn more about the instances you're you're talking about. I mean, I, I've seen people chatter about re you know, like junior colleges and trade schools, not for-profit ones but you know old school trade schools and germany often gets brought up as like an alternative training model but i just haven't seen as many experiments with it in practice as i would
1: like to so yeah well offline i'll send you uh, an email with some of these instances they're i, I they're really pro- i think they're very very promising i mean i'd love to teach you one of these places i think they're pretty great uh so who benefits from stem education
0: The NSF, I don't know. I mean, I I was just uh, having—I just had breakfast for the first time with this engineer and businessman and journalist named Bob Charette, writer named Bob Charette, who wrote at IEEE Spectrum. It was his, his title is like something like the STEM crisis myth. It's from 2012 or 2013, and I think it's you know the the whole idea that STEM there's a crisis in STEM and we need more STEM majors or whatever, right? Is Largely a creation of the National Science Foundation and has to do, you know, in part with uh, getting more grad students into uh, R1s and elite research universities to do like work for free, basically, you know. And I think that, you know, I think our economy hasn't benefited from STEM. I think the people who get STEM degrees are often not well served by the hype around that. I really think it's kind of elites and the science interest group that benefit the most. And that's one of the things, another thing I teach in that innovation class. I'm like, when you hear researchers asking, you know, saying, well, what we need is more research, federal research funding. Like, you got to understand that these groups, the National Academy of Science, the NSF, these are Interest groups like pushing for rents, just like any other interest. Yeah, group. the first question yeah. is always
1: qui bono, right? Who, bene- who yeah. benefits? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So some of my friends who teach in the English department have stopped taking graduate students, PhD students, because they know they they know it's immoral at this point. You know, I mean, I I think getting a PhD in English is worth doing for its own sake, but uh, not for the sake of the belief that you're going to get a job, right? Do we? Do you think that's that sort of STEM? educators should begin feeling the same way? Are they setting setting people up not to have jobs and to over overpromise?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that I would want to really look at the numbers to think through that. <laughs> but I would start with like I you know, I am I'll just say this out loud. I mean I think that programs like my own should probably widen down over time. I just think like in the humanities and social sciences we really need to start closing programs. And I, I basically I think I've you know, unless something like very compelling happened, I don't think I'm going to be taking more grad students who are looking at the academic job market in the United States. I just think that's like immoral, basically. And I think what we would want to go into STEM numbers and, and really kind of bring those down to, although I, mean, I think we do need important kinds of research. So the question is, like, how do we create new institutions to do that kind of work? And I don't think that's obvious. You know, like, I think that takes thought.
1: So you saying winding down your sort of program from a PhD graduate school perspective or even undergraduate, because I would imagine that what you're teaching is worth knowing, again, for its own sake.
0: Yeah, I just mean that I think we need to put hard limits on uh, folks coming into programs like mine who want to become professors, basically if people have compelling reasons to do it for other, for other reasons, the undergrad thing's interesting here at Virginia tech, we don't have a major yet. So, um, I, I have, I can make a stronger argument for STS on, as an undergraduate major than I can as a grad major at this point.
1: Right. I was, you know, so most of my research, at least the stuff that I get funded is related to nurse practitioners. And that's, if, if there's a growth industry, it's obviously the healthcare system. Actually, to be honest with you, if there's a growth industry, it's not nurse practitioners, it's home health aides, right? That's the real growth industry. And, um, which is a problem. Right, exactly, which we're going to get to in a little <laughs> bit. Um, yeah. And these programs are growing like crazy. There's been this enormous, enormous growth in nurse practitioner programs and the number of graduates we crank out. And we're all under the assumption that, that these jobs are out there. But I just reviewed a paper a little while ago for a journal that seemed to demonstrate that NP salaries were flat, that what's, what's probably happening is we're flooding the market without us even knowing it. Now, I don't think any field thinks through this stuff in a systematic no, way, we're doing the same thing with CS
0: degrees right now. I mean, frankly, I think there we're going to, in a couple of years, we're going to end up in a place where there's many more CS graduates than there computer science, by the way, if, if listeners know. Mm-hmm. Than we have jobs, and I think, like, so the deeper thing I've become interested in is like, is when we when we think about economic problems, like inequality and other things, how it's become an article of faith, especially amongst Democrats, but also amongst Republicans, that like education is the key to that. And we, I'm, I'm writing a paper right now about the 90s and the Clinton administration and Robert Reich and all these characters. And it's like they really think education is the, the, the solution to like poor black people and women and all this kind of stuff. And then what you see is like by 2005 or right around there is that, you know, the, the wages that college graduates are bringing in stagnate and then actually start going down. And it's because you're just like turning out all these college grads, but you're not actually creating more work. Right. And so like if if you're not dealing with like the lack
1: of work, you're really not dealing with the problem. And the interesting point you make in your book, too, is we think that computer science is somehow sort of a fancy, innovative field, but it's actually a maintenance field. So if you're going to be a, you know, if you're going to be like, you know, working in a IT department, I know those aren't exactly people that have computer science degrees, but I'm sure some of them do this. You might as well be working as a plumber.
0: Yep. You might as well be working as a plumber. And also we need to read since so much, uh, so much of, IT, well, you know, computer work is not, you do not need a CS degree. We really need to create more kind of working class, you know, training programs in, in junior colleges and stuff. We just need to rethink that.
1: So. Yeah. That's all really interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about, we haven't even really spoken about what's the real focus of your book and then the, your, the organization that you started, the maintainers, which is maintenance. So talk a little bit about that and maybe within the context of what I think is the biggest sign of America's lack of attention and maintenance, which is our physical infrastructure, right? So why is it important to my city leaders that I have Wi-Fi on the city bus? I noticed that the other day. I didn't know we did we had this, but I was sitting there. I just dropped my kids off somewhere and I just sent out an email. I'm like, I wonder, because I was in New York and everyone, they're, they're advertising their Wi-Fi. And, I, and lo and behold, my city bus has Wi-Fi. Why do city leaders care that we have Wi-Fi on the bus?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, the Transit Center in New York, that is a, is a tr- public transit advocacy group. I mean, they work in New York, but they also do public transit advocacy all throughout the nation. They've done studies that show that leaders think that, you know, like city leaders think that you need to add bells and whistles to transit to get people to use it. So it's partly an, an inducement. Well, we have Wi-Fi on our bus, right? So now you can do work on the way to work or whatever. Um, but what the transit center has found repeatedly is that people just want service that works, runs on time, and, you know, doesn't break down and just operates really effectively. And they don't need all these bells and whistles. So I think that that's, for me, is a beautiful example example of like how nifty innovations become like honey or something for these these leaders when really the people mostly just want functioning stuff in their lives
1: so you know another great example in our city is so i am a bicyclist i bike to work from time to time and they put in these traffic circles on our street where you know they're supposed to like flow slow the flow of traffic and be really great for bicyclists it's not quite clear to me how that works you go down you go down the street all these amazing traffic circles that they just put in and then you turn left on east liberty boulevard and the bike Lane is just riddled with potholes. Right? <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you guys also had that that bridge collapse last. Was it last exactly. year? That maintenance played a part in that too. Yeah.
1: So this is really, you know, this this next question is: so why is it that Americans seem so unimpressed with our crumbling infrastructure? It, it seems like you know a big bridge will collapse, would be very upset, and then you know, in, in, to your point, you make the point about Japan that has these amazing you know trains that travel however many miles per hour, very very fast, and they're always within a minute of their supposed arrival time. And if anyone rides Amtrak, you know that you know, you're know you not going to get there within a minute of your proposed arrival time. But we don't seem to care all that much. Or maybe we do. Maybe I just don't hang out with the right people.
0: Well, it pops up every now and again when a disaster strikes, you're saying. I think part of the problem is that and this is both ideological, we could say, and kind of structural when it comes to social structures. But American, in, when we say infrastructure policy, especially at the federal level, we're mostly focusing on building new stuff. And we have this rule where basically uh, Chuck Marone of Strong Towns, a Catholic libertarian thinker, by the way, you know, has done pretty good analysis of how federal infrastructure policy basically encourages localities to build new things. But then the localities are promising to deal with uh, maintenance in perpetuity, and they don't have the tax bases to deal with them, right? So, I mean, I think that there's very deep ideological and structural issues that force us to building new things but not taking care of what, what we have. And to do that, you'd really have to rethink federal policy, I think. And that's part of what we say in the book is that we really need to think about maintenance more than
1: building. Well, so, okay, so this is literally the next question. You're like teeing up every single question. This is great. So, in November of last year, Joe Biden signed a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Is this going to do the trick? Why not? Unfortunately, I mean, because it's so much of it, it's like pork and building new stuff, and, and it's
0: not. Some not a maintenance centered bill, you know, and that's the other thing I forgot to mention pork earlier. But like when we look at you know like what these policies turn into, it's just like a grab bag for all the legislatures from all over the nation. You know, it's like what well, what am I going to get out of it basically? You
1: know. So yeah, what are the political conditions that might move us towards some sort of reasonable infrastructure plan?
0: Yeah, I mean I think that so. We talk a bit about this when we talk about solutions at, near the end of the book. And, you know, I think there's a lot more to say here. But I think, for instance, you this is, I think, a place where progressives and conservatives could, would come together, because I think one of the things you want to do is start counting all the infrastructure that localities possess as liabilities, And so when they apply for, you know, more infrastructure spending, they should have it down, like how much liabilities they have out of the books. We could create standards for like what's reasonable, like liabilities versus tax bases, and just build standards, you know, for saying, like, you can only have so much liability unless, you know, we decide, like, uh, you're a very poor place that we need to help federally or something like that, you know. And so I think that both conservatives and progressives should be on board with that kind that kind of shift in thinking, which is just like, you know, like, let's think about our debts. Right? I mean, it's very classic. You know, we could, again, we, that we could draw in lots of theologians here to, to think about that issue, like think about our sins and debts
1: and, and work on those first, you know. Yeah, so so those are some political conditions that might lead us to sort of smarter infrastructure maintenance. But what are the cultural conditions? Under what cultural conditions might the West, the United States, move towards a prioritization of maintenance above innovation? What would have to change about our imaginations in the way that we sort of conceive of ourselves in the future?
0: Well... I mean, I think it, th- this goes back to what you're talking about with Kings North and, and stuff. You know, I think that we would have to move away from the idea that technological change is going to save us, you know. And then it, when you move away from that, then you start thinking, I mean, this is what, you know, Andy and I say a lot is that we have to start thinking about ends. Okay, let's talk about means and ends for a second. Technologies are means to ends. And yet we've come to treat technological improvement as an end in itself effectively. That's the, you could say, that's the idle part of it, right? And so, if we shift that and we say, well, we want to, let's say human well-being, you know, Christians would think about it differently, but let's say human well-being becomes the end we're we're trying to seek. And we give up on the idea that technology is going to get us to some holy land in the end, you know, then I would think that, maintenance really does come forward. Maintenance and care, you know, caring for each other and, and taking care of what we have really comes together because we want the things that we have in our world to be functional. And even more than that, we want them to be beautiful, maybe even, right? We, we want to live with bridges and things that are, uh, you know, are appealing to our senses. And so I think we start bringing in those kind of bigger questions when we kind of push technology aside.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that. The Beatrice Institute's sort of a part of going through this sort of slow process of thinking through what it might look like to try to unify the sciences around this question of, of, we call it human flourishing. I mean, that's, that's sort of our focus. And so, you know, the, the humanity is saying, well, what is a person? The anthropology, what is a person? And then what are the needs and motivations of that thing that we call person? And then how do we orient technology and healthcare and politics? So we're teaching a class in the spring. It's me and some folks, uh, some buddies from English and engineering. It's called human flourishing. And the whole point is like, what is flourishing? But the big part is, if we had this idea in mind, what would innovation look like? We're gonna we have, we have a little module on innovation, healthcare, et cetera. So I do, actually, I think what you did say is I think that's a promising way forward is putting the person in the center of all of this stuff, right?
0: Right. And I think for me, so I think of it, I mean, I think of this, one of the traditions I come out of is like, it's related to existentialism and phenomenology. And it's called like the philosophical anthropology is how I think of it. But I think that we can't move forward with things like climate policy and thinking about these very deep existential issues without thinking about what humans actually need. And that's controversial in capitalism where we're supposed to just like, it's just supposed to be open to whoever. And it's like, no, you actually have to think about needs because we actually have to cut back consumption, right? So what do we need to be happy? What kind of free time do we need? What kind of entertainments do we need? What kind of spiritual life do we need? All these things, you know? And I agree. Yeah, so this is a great
1: section of um, a sermon that was done by Martin Luther King. And he makes the point that actually at the center, he's, this was in 1950. 50, the end of 1950s, and he said, you know, the central conflict between communism and capitalism is ultimately a question about what is man, right? Because those are two systems that have very particular views of the human person, and they're using the human person for different ends. And this was the center of the pontificate of John Paul II, of um, Benedict XVI. So, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. Is I, I think the reemergence of a philosophical anthropology or theological anthropology is probably at the center of, it's the spiritual center. At least that's kind of what I'm betting on.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, I also look back to like Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum and the so-called capabilities approach, which is also about thinking about what humans actually need to be happy.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. So do you know of any companies, so changing the subject a little bit, that develop technology that have the innovation maintenance decay process in their design schemes, or is it literally just innovation, sell, rinse and repeat?
0: No, I think that, all right. So it's kind of fun to think about like, I'll end up somewhere different. But to think about Amazon Web Services and Netflix for a second. So Amazon Web Services, I think this is still true, is by far the most profitable part of Amazon. It's basically like the money, where the money comes in for the rest of the operation. And, um, you know, the, the similarity between Amazon Web Services and Netflix is they both compete on uptime or quality of service. And so they both have amazing maintenance teams as a result of it, cutting edge ones that have actually introduced innovations and maintenance. But I also think, so you see it when the bottom line is important, maintenance is so important to the bottom line that you have to think through it. But I also think you th- see it in more mature firms like Oracle and places like this where You know, like that's just such a part of the business that that that's just part like in Oracle, you can get credit for being a maintainer in a serious way. That's like you can do that and be an important part of the company recognized one. And and like just to contrast this with something like because of how our startup system works with venture capital and stuff. Startups are often not thinking through maintenance and sustainability at all, because they're just trying to get some kind of viable in quotation marks product off the ground that then will get hoovered up by one of these big tech firms, you know. And so that is the contrast, I think, is like these startups that are not focused on thinking through these issues at all.
1: So I've been thinking recently, whenever I buy new, and partially, your book really crystallized some things in my mind that i have already been thinking through. So I got rid of my electric mower, and I replaced it with a real mower, right? Because I can look at a real mower, yeah, and I'm like, oh, there's the, there's the seven parts that make this thing work, and I suspect if I took it apart, I could probably put it back together and replace the blades, right? So I've been trying to do this, but... And this is teeing up this next question. So to what extent is the crisis of maintenance a crisis of time? Mm, Time and money,
0: yeah. Well, it raises interesting questions, I mean, about how much we all take on in terms of stuff. You know, and we think about like, you know, just really good data on like the growing size of the average American home over the last half a century and all the stuff we bring into it. So it might just be true in, in some sense that we've taken on so much stuff in our households that we simply cannot do all the maintenance ourselves. You know, Andy and I tend not to over idealize DIY. I mean, there's stuff I DIY, but I also am glad to live in a, you know, a capitalist economy where I can hire an expert to actually know what they're doing. Yeah, and I live, so I live in a house that has a well, and I'm kind of like outside of town, so there's systems that I inter- I, need, I rely on that I just have no knowledge of
1: whatsoever. So how might I decide to fix something myself as opposed to hiring a maintainer? You know, because it's good both for me, because the job will be done correctly, but then also it's money for people, that, that important group of people that we think are important, right? How do you make that decision then? Maybe that's a better question.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's about, it's about a bunch of things. I mean, some of it, I think I actually enjoy some maintenance work, right? So if it's something that's going to give me pleasure or give my family, there's things like, you know, you homeschool your kids, I think about, you know, rearing my children appropriately. And so there's things, there's projects worth taking on, because they have bigger ends and values than than just getting it done. But then like, you know, you know, I'm a busy guy, you're a busy guy. I mean, there's things that sometimes I need done that it looks pretty implausible that I'm going to do it quickly or properly, (laughs) you know, like replacing the floor in my basement or whatever. And so, you know, I think it's just you have to do... Cost benefit analysis effectively. The only thing I'll say is that I think that, you know, somewhere my wife and I headed um, is we hold family meetings. We've kind of gotten out of it the last couple of months, but we try to hold a family meeting on Saturday morning where we look through, you know, what we're going to eat that week, but also things like where maintenance is at and where budgets are at. And then we also, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm privileged to some degree. I'm a professor, I make good money. We also just created maintenance funds. Where we like regularly put, put money aside for the car and for the house just because it's just realistic, you're going to have to deal with stuff. So I do think there's changes we can make on a personal level to think through. Although my things. most
1: basic heuristic is, uh, we'll just burn my house down. So, so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> dude, I think that's, I have, yeah, I, I don't exactly, mess with
1: electricity. Yeah.
0: And it's because, uh, you know,
1: yeah, I like, the- out, yeah, yeah. I don't mess with my well. Yeah, I right. Don't so mess actually, those, those like are my two just... heuristics. So yeah. I could burn my house down or flood my house. And then, and then if the answer is yes, yeah, I, I exactly. try not to do it. All right. So I do want to talk a little bit about this connection between sustainability and maintenance. There's this deep irony that I see amongst our sort of political and business elites that speak incessantly about sustainability, but nothing about maintenance. Is that just a deep... To Talk about that deep irony. I, I find it totally ironic. Yeah, it is
0: ironic in a number of ways. I mean, the first thing is that um, poorly maintained systems use more energy, right? So just on a, like a sheer, like on that level, if we don't take care of our things, we're being less sustainable. And then the other thing is that we can adopt, we already see this happening in some places with with solar arrays and stuff. We can adopt a bunch of new stuff into the world and not think through the maintenance of it. And just, you know, it will fail on us eventually. And the third thing, the third thing is that, and this is ties more to not just the climate, but other kinds of environmental issues around the, There's a notion of the circular economy, which is that we just have to keep our things alive for longer. Okay, And it's both because we're wasting resources, because every time we just take something and throw it in the garbage, we've just wasted metal and plastic and all this stuff. But also, if we just have a waste society, we have to produce more, right? And production has all kinds of environmental outcomes. So we need to keep things alive for- So you're right. I mean, I think that there's just like this conversation exists in some expert domains, but is largely lacking in popular consciousness.
1: Right. So to what extent, and this actually circles back to some points that Paul Kingsnorth has been making on his um, Substack Abbey Misrule. So to what extent is sustainability, sort of the contemporary sustainability movement, really just an effort to sustain the innovation delusion.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think this is like... You know, King's North, I think of a person politically kind of off the map, you know, like he's not like a he's not a conservative or a lefty or, you know, like he's something he's a different animal for good reason. But this is the classic left critique of sustainability, ultimately. And a lot of this stuff is that it's just about keeping the kind of capitalist machine going. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth to that.
1: All right, so I want to talk, as you know, we've been emailing, you know, my interest is really in the well-being of healthcare workers, particularly ones that haven't gone to college. This is really the growth in the economy, and they're in a really unique position where, those sorts of maintainers are unique right they they're not caring for pipes and wires they're caring for the human person right the bodies. so how the needs of maintainers in the care economy differ from the needs of other maintainers, such as plumbers, carpenters, handymen? Do Could you think about them in a different way are, Is your maintainer group are there any sort of home health aids apart or is this a lot of you know plumbers carpenters handymen
0: no we include we we include care work and under our definition of maintenance, and we do that for a number of reasons but I mean, I think that one difference is, you know, when we were talking about the trades earlier, you can make pretty good money as a plumber or an HVAC person or home health care work and these other, you know, service care jobs that have grown up in the past couple of decades just pay terribly low. There's a lot of burnout there, you know, often don't have health care and other kinds of things, you know, and they get sick. There's all you know, like there's this book forced to care. I like that shows that like they get diseases more, they get heart disease more, you know, because uh, they're stressed out all the time. And so I think that they really are a class of folks that we need to especially pay attention to.
1: Yeah, I've actually noticed that there's a hole in a lot of the health services research, which is my field. There's a lot of talk about, you know, nursing burnout, physician burnout. There's a little bit about nurses aides, but it's a big hole because there's no, there's no nurses aide who has a PhD at the University of Pittsburgh who's doing nurse aid research. And, you know, I I don't want to poo-poo people that are actually doing this, but it is, it is certainly a hole within, within health services research that we're trying to, Phil here at the University of Pittsburgh have you read uh, Gabriel Wyant's book I did in fact if you got some time I interviewed Gabe for this podcast it was probably my it was probably my favorite one because you know we realize you know so Gabe is you know self-avowed atheist Marxist and you know I'm, I'm a Catholic personalist but we actually you know those two traditions have a lot to say to each other and they agree on so many things so it's actually a really fun interview to think about the ways in which we agree and disagree so yeah and so his, his book was, was really, really, it actually really sparked my interest in this field. You know, I'm, I'm a Pittsburgher. I'm from Pittsburgh. And, you know, you sort of stand, you know, the Homestead Works now and it's a shopping mall. And then you go down the river and see the UPMC tower and you realize just how much the city has changed, how much the face of American labor has changed. And I think that his book does a really, really great job of, of pointing that out. So, yeah. Well, that's the end of my questions. This was really, really fun. I, you know, as we were emailing, I had a feeling this was gonna be a fun conversation and, and you, it certainly lived up to that. So I, I thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to chat with me and hopefully we'll have a chance to, to collaborate on some things. I think we have a lot of mutual interests.
0: That's right, man. I, I um, Thanks a lot for having me and I, I agree. I think we have a lot of overlapping interests. All right, so great. Have, have a good day. All right, take care. Yep. All right, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, .org. And if you are a university student or a faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God.